So, welcome back, everybody, to Uncensored CMO. And in this episode, we have got a very fast returning guest. In fact, he was only on two episodes ago, Nir Ayal. Maybe consider this like a double bill. But actually, Nir came to prominence originally writing a book called Hooked almost 10 years ago about how tech companies are building habit forming products that get us addicted to what they sell. And it's a fascinating book, but it tells us what the tactics are we can deploy to help our customers get hooked onto our products. Nir has got a very simple four-step process. And the amazing thing about it is once you understand it, you see it in use everywhere. In fact, um, you know, as I look around the world today, you can really see how businesses all around the world are using the principles that Nir identified in Hook. So I caught up with Nir to find out about what's changed in the few years since he wrote the book, you know, what AI might present in terms of opportunity, what he thinks is a metaverse and things like that. There's so much in this episode that you can apply directly to your brand and to your business model. Um, just to say, before we get into the interview as well, unfortunately, we weren't able to do it live. So on uh, YouTube, you'll be seeing us uh, in our in our virtual studio rather than the real one. So hopefully that doesn't uh, diminish the experience. It certainly won't diminish the quality uh, of conversation insight that we have with Nia. So without further ado, let's get into it. So listen, firstly, let me just welcome back Nia. Thank you for coming back on the show. My pleasure. I'm so honored to be invited back. Is it, Am I the first repeat guest or have you had others? I've had I've had two right so you'll okay. be interested in actually you'll be you'll be interested in both right so the first repeat guest was Rory Sutherland oh that's and so it, okay, well there you go right here it's one of my favorites I love that book and, and th- there's Great a book, massive yeah. appetite for behavioral science isn't there because you know understanding how why we do the things we do and sometimes we'll get into this later we don't do the logical thing. And I think that's what Rory right. is so good at pointing out is, is how we sometimes do what may appear to be irrational, which is brilliant. And, and the, other, the other repeat guest I've had is, you may not know him, but hopefully you will do soon, or my colleague Orlando Wood, who wrote The Psychology of Advertising. And he uses mm. you know, much of the behavioral science insights to work out why we respond to advertising. So he's kind of taken mm. you know, what you do, what Rory does, what you know, Daniel Kahneman's done, and applied that to advertising. So you yeah, know, well, in a very a practical company. way, actually. I'm yeah. honored to be in that in that strata. That's great. Now I have to beat these guys. I have to come third or fourth. I, know, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and coming up soon as well, my very first guest ever was Richard Shotton, who wrote The Choice Factory. And Richard Ooh. is coming back. He's he's followed the book up with another one. And so he'll be coming on the show in two weeks. So there's something about behavioral science that really engages people. I think we're fascinated, mm. aren't we, about why do we do the things we do? You know, it's, and it's great. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a, a lifelong obsession for me, for sure. Amazing. Well, listen, let's get into Hooks because it, it, it's a wonderful read. But maybe let's start with a, maybe an unusual question, which is how Hooked and Indistractable connect together. Because what I noticed, having read them both actually within maybe a sort of a, a, within the same month, is that what you've done in Hooked is reveal some of the clever tactics that, you know, big companies, technology companies use to get us hooked, as you call it. And Indistractable, you're giving us the tools to manage those techniques that are being used time and time again against us. Was that accidental or was it, or was it just the fact that you are, by understanding how the technology is used, it also gave you an insight into how we might therefore use the technology? Well, they're describing different products. Right. So we want to get hooked to the exercise app, to the language learning app, to the app that helps us save money. All of these products that can build healthy habits. That's why I stole the secrets of Silicon Valley. Right. And put them into this book. 
Hooked was published in 2014, Facebook and Google and Amazon and all these products were, you know, these companies were founded way, way before. And these techniques have been known in the gaming industry for decades. What I wanted to do was to democratize these techniques so that people out there listening to the show can use them for good, to build healthy habits in people's lives. We want people to get hooked to healthy habits, right? But we don't just have bad habits. We also have good habits. And and a habit is very different from an addiction. The book is not called How to Build Addictive Products. The book is called How to Build Habit-Forming Products because addictions, by definition, are these persistent compulsive dependencies on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So we would never want to addict people. What we would want to do is to build a habit. A habit is just a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. And about 50% of your behavior, whether you like it or not, is done through a habit. So instead of letting these tech companies hold these secrets hostage, why don't we all use them in our businesses to improve people's lives through good habits? Now, just as we would want to build a good habit with an exercise app or with a language learning app or any number of other services that can help us improve our lives, we can also use behavioral psychology to help us break the bad habits. And so that's what Indistractable is about. And these are different products, right? We can have the good habits while breaking the bad habits, specifically those around distraction. And Indistractable, as we talked about in the last episode, is a lot about you know tech distraction, but that's not all the book is about. Most of the book is actually about the deeper reasons why we get distracted. And, and what I found in my five years of research into Indistractable was that our technologies are just the proximal cause. They're not the root cause of the problem, in fact. That makes a lot of sense. No, thank you for describing that. That's really, really helpful. What fascinated me, so the the book may be eight years old now, but it really felt up to date. I mean, I I was reading every chapter going, yep, I can see that. Yep, I can see that. So in the eight years since you you read the book, have you seen more and more of these techniques being adopted? I mean, it feels like almost everyone is adopting these techniques. Every app I've got is is using a lot of these. Is that a, a true reflection of what you've seen? It's funny because when I first published Hooked, the big struggle back then was convincing people that these techniques mattered. That I had to convince people that Zuckerberg and uh, Jack Dorsey and uh, the Kevin Systrom, like all these, all these people who were applying these techniques to their products like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I had to convince people that they weren't just getting lucky. Right? I had to convince people that these people understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Today, I don't have to convince anybody of that. <laughs> right? People know how <laughs> these technologies are and, and that they are designed to engage. And that's, and that's very much the, the premise of Hooked is to, you know, to, to, as I mentioned earlier, to democratize these techniques. And I, I will say and that, that I've been very happy to have played a role in how many products today are so much better designed because of for, you know, I know for a fact many of them have read my book. So, for example, in the updated edition of Hooked, I actually did a case study of a product called Fitbod. And Fitbod is, is an exercise app. And I remember I had written previously, a few, a few months before I discovered this app, I was so frustrated how bad fitness apps were out there that I wrote an article, it's still up on my blog, you can read it today, that says, why your fitness app is making you fat. That was the title of the blog post, why your fitness app is making you fat, because they were just all so poorly designed. And then somebody read this article and said, hey, have you seen FitBod? You should really check it out. Downloaded it, started playing with it. I was so impressed. I immediately went to the customer service button and sent them an email and said, have you by chance read my book? Within 30 seconds, the CEO of the company writes me back and says, yes, we read your book, Hooked. We designed it into the way wow let me tell you i've been using this product 
consistently for the past five years, I would say now, five, six years, I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm 45, about to turn 45 years old yep. this month. And I've never been in better shape because I've developed this good habit with this product. So it's been it's been amazing. It's been the best thing I've done in my professional life to see this work proliferate into every conceivable industry. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, how satisfying as well. That, that's brilliant. And, and look, we'll come on to it in a minute as well, because it actually got me thinking about some of the products that I've done in the last three or four years, actually, which I'd love to talk to you about. We'll get into it in a bit later. Sure. But listen, just briefly summarize and we'll go through the four sections because you really neatly lay out the kind of four parts of the model. Just describe for everyone listening the kind of four parts to getting hooked as, as you describe sure. in the book. Yeah, sure. And so there's longer explanations in the book, of course, but I'll give you just a very, very quick high-level overview that a hook is an experience to connect the user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit. Now, there's a lot more depth in all this. For example, frequency is a key component. It's very difficult to change consumer behavior if the behavior does not occur with sufficient frequency. But what a hook does, it's, it's an experience designed to connect the user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit by sending them through these four basic steps, starting with the trigger phase. There are two kinds of triggers. External triggers are the ones that most people are familiar with. We'll get back to the other one in a minute. That one's actually even more important than the external triggers. But every hook starts with the training wheels of a hook before the habit is formed is sending external triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that tells you what to do next. The next step is the action phase, which is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing the user can do to get psychological relief for the reason they came. So this is where reducing friction is incredibly important if, if you're trying to build that habit. The third step is the variable reward phase. And so it's not good enough just to give people what they want. Many people are mistaken that they think, oh, you know, that habits are just about, you know, a trigger, action, a reward, that's it. No, not good enough. When it comes to products, as opposed to personal habits, the reward has to have a bit of variability. This is called an intermittent reinforcement. And so you see in every kind of habit-forming product, online, offline, doesn't matter, enterprise, a consumer web, doesn't matter, you have to have some kind of mystery, some kind of uncertainty for this variable reward. So when you think about what makes slot machines engaging, right? It's that uncertainty around what you might win when you play a game of chance. What makes the news new, right? N-E-W, the first three letters of news is new. What's different? What don't I know? It's what makes a book interesting. It's what makes a movie fun to watch. What makes sports? I mean, think about how stupid it is that, you know, these silly monkeys that we are, we like watching a ball bounce up and down a court or a pitch, right? Why is it so engaging? We call these things football and hockey and different sports but basically it's a variable reward mechanism all these things are engaging because there's mystery that's the heart of the hook model there has to be some kind of uncertainty the final step of the hook the fourth step is the investment phase and this is really what's different about the hook model than you would find with with habits as described by you know countless books they don't include this this very very important step which is specific to product design which is that you have to get the user to invest in the product, not necessarily with money, but with something that makes the product better with use. The reason that the technological re revolution that we're going through right now is so impactful is that for the first time, habit-forming products can appreciate in value. They should get better and better the more they're used, as opposed to what most products do, they depreciate. Habit-forming products should appreciate because of this concept that I call stored value, meaning the product has to get better and better the more the user invests in it. So it can come in the form of data, content, reputation, skill acquisition. There's a whole bunch of ways that, that we can discuss further, but that's essentially the four steps of the hook model so that with successive cycles through the hook model, eventually, 
the user forms an association with what's called an internal trigger. That's that second type of trigger that I told you about earlier. The first kind being the external trigger. The second and most important kind is called the internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that the user seeks to escape. So boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, it's always an uncomfortable emotional itch that we seek relief from. So the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product, it doesn't create the itch, right? We never create the itch. We never create an internal trigger. We seek users' existing problems. This is why I love my profession. We are solving problems. We are satiating pain points. So you've gotta be able to articulate what is your product's use going to attach to? What is that fundamental feeling that every time the user feels, every time they experience, your product is the salve, is the solution. So that eventually, and here's where it really gets to be a big deal, you don't need the external triggers anymore, right? So that eventually you're not checking your, your, your phone because you heard a ping ding a ring, you're checking it because uh, you, you know, you're feeling anxious or stressed or lonely or whatever the, might, the case might be. That's why you're going to use this app as opposed to just because of an external trigger. So think about the power of a product that people use not because of spammy messaging, not because of expensive advertising, but because they have triggered themselves. They created an unprompted user engagement. That becomes a huge competitive advantage. I mean, just going back to when you're talking about investment as well, if you can get your users to invest in your products, right, imagine how much more your business is worth because you're not having to, you know, you're not having to employ more people to sell it. You're effectively your users are, you know, selling your product for you or using your product more, which is fascinating. Right. If we go back to the beginning in terms of if someone's listening and they want to invent a new product, I was quite fascinated by the, I think it was the five whys you describe mm. as well as to how you get down to, and this links to the internal trigger as well, doesn't it? Explain why the what, five, asking why five times might be an important way of uncovering a, a truth to build your your model on sure sure so many teams you know it, it, when, when they're building a product they stop at the functional needs of the consumer right the consumer wants to do xyz done let's just help them do that and that gives you a very narrow aperture you don't really understand the user's problem when you stop when you found what you think is the solution so to really understand the consumer's problem on a psychological basis, one technique that's very effective is called the five whys. The five whys, I didn't invent it, I can't take credit for it. This comes from the Toyota production system. And so the idea here is that you ask yourself why the user would, would use the product. When you, use, you do that five times or until you get to an emotion. Right, So it can be as something as simple as email. Why would our user check email? Well, she wants to send a message, but why? Oh, she wants to do such and such. Okay, but why, but why, but why, but why? Until you get to an uncomfortable emotional itch. It has to be a negative emotional state. And then that's when you have the widest aperture to be creative to solve that problem. When you actually understand, when you start with an emotion rather than a feature, you're much more likely to be successful. That is so interesting. But it explains why in your book, you talk about how actually pain avoidance, ironically, is actually one of the sort of deep psychological states that, we're, that, that are causing our triggers, aren't they? You know, we're, we're, and it's also why actually flipping it on the other side, something I've believed for a long time, and I, I, I just saw the theme come through your book so much, is how important making something easy is, right? Because mm. if you can take friction out of the system or if you can make it easier to do something, and in fact, at System One, where I work, we, uh, we, work, we, we test advertising. So, you know, we, we get consumers to tell us emotionally 
how they felt about advertising we used that to improve it basically Mm -hmm. and we had this wonderful product you know that very successful we had it for many years but we decided to automate it and make it as easy as a we transfer so if you're an advertiser right you'd go upload your ad to test your ad we called it upload it to test your ad everything else is taken care of and 24 hours later you've got this report and the report the report is like a you know it's 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 like a slideshow that talks you through and here's what they felt and this is why they we in fact we use the we we call it the three whys but we don't go as far as five but we do the why did you feel that emotion and why did you feel that and why did you feel that and and so and it's it's a beautiful experience but it, it's really taken off for us. And I think one, when mm. I was designing it with Colin, who is an amazing designer, we actually based it on Strava. We were like, how do we make this test as easy as possible and as mm. fun and as shareable? And, 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 you know, when we were debating it with some of my research colleagues who wanted to go, no, 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 show them more detail, show them more complexity, add these extra features in. It was a really interesting decision, but we sort of went with, how do we make it easy? And if you make yeah. it easy, people might use it again. And amazingly, it's, it, it's become over 90% of our sales in this particular Excellent. product group come from the one report before. But this is amazing stat, right? Before we had 46 different products mm. and the one <laughs> has replaced the 46. But anyway, wow. a, a fun example. Amazing. But I've really seen the make it easy and take out the barriers, as, as it were, sort of thing. So anyway, sorry, just shot a chair. That as a and it's, it's not example. as easy as necessarily removing it entirely from the product experience. It's about putting it in the right place. So when there is friction before the reward, so this is why it's so important to start with what is the internal trigger, right? What is the feeling that your user is experiencing that they want to get rid of, that they need a solution for? Now you've really got to figure out what that solution is or what that internal trigger is, or else you're flying blind. So that's that's the most important first step because you know every CMO needs to know this, that the reason people use your product, the, the reason we do everything in life, the, the, the seat of motivation, what you've probably been told is that it's about carrots and sticks, right? It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That's not true. Neurologically speaking, everything we do, everything we do is about the desire to escape discomfort. So you've got to be able to articulate what is that internal trigger. By the way, even the desire to feel good, wanting, craving, lusting, desire, all these things are psychologically destabilizing. Mm-hmm. So even the desire to feel good is the way the brain gets us to act is by making us feel uncomfortable. Right. So by understanding that, if you can focus on that uncomfortable emotional state, that's going to help you design the best possible product. And then the next step, it, the action phase, the, the, that's where the habit is actually manifested. That's where you want as little friction as possible. Anything that stands in the way between the recognition of the need and the, the relief of that discomfort, that's where you want to minimize friction, right? That, that's essentially the definition of all technology, if you think about it. Anything that shortens that distance, whether it's the cotton gin or the iPhone, that's the point of all technological innovation is to shorten the distance between the recognition of the need and the, 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 the solution. So that's where you want to minimize friction. Now, where you want to potentially increase friction is in the investment phase. Okay, not too much. There's a very delicate balance, but that's where you're that that's where it's okay after you've given the user something, after you've scratched that psychological itch with the variable reward, that's where you can ask them to invest a little bit. That's where they can give you some data, do some customization, build a profile, whatever the case might be. It's the investment phase, and this is probably one of the biggest mistakes I see out there, is that people get it wrong. They say, let's put all the features and benefits and text and video and convince them up front, and then you lose the user because they don't take the key action you've designed for them. 
Oh, that's really, really interesting. You've got me thinking now about our product now, because we, 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 we sort of have the tease. You, you get your ad report and it goes, you know, here's what everyone thought. And then you've got a, a button you can press to compare. And you can go mm. and see how it compares with the rest of our database. And you go, well, how does it compare versus my competitor or versus my country? And, and, and so on. So, but I like the fact that actually what you need to do is build, yeah, build investment. So you, you're then, you're then sharing your community. You're then sort of, you know, doing, use, comparing it or, yeah, so you, yeah, exactly. So you get the interaction. Because what, what was stumbling me as I was thinking about what we do is we're an infrequent purchase, right? You might create four ads a year and then hopefully in those four ads you're using us to do it. But actually what you do there with the investment phase is you give people reasons then to, 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 to re-engage, don't you, and to stay engaged, which, which obviously builds the, builds the hook. Right. So it's usually very, very difficult to get people hooked to a product that's only used four times a year. The only way around it is to make the investment heavy the first time they go through the hook so that there's a lot there for them to come back to. So the best example here, if you, I know it's not going to be relevant for all your listeners, but in the United States, we have a horrible tax system where it's a, in most countries, it's not like this, but it, it, the, basically the government knows how much you owe, but they won't tell you. They make you figure it out yourself and they won't tell you how much you owe. The, unlike most countries where they say, we know how much you owe, here's, you know, send us the check. So in America, we have to do our own taxes and calculate it, and, and we many times have to pay accountants. So one company that actually is the exception to the frequency rule is Intuit. They make a very popular product called TurboTax. And how does that work? By putting so much information into the product in year one, right, uploading all your taxes and how many kids you have and assets and all that stuff, that's such a heavy investment that next year you say, well, I could start from scratch somewhere else, but I've already put all this investment into the product. I'll go back again. Now, not every product has that kind of emotional resonance as, as taxes, right? But for your product, what I would recommend is actually, you know, when, when a person wants to push that button and says, compare me to my clients or to my uh, competitors, that's a beautiful investment opportunity, right? Because now you can get yeah. more data about, well, who are your competitors and where are you based and what kind of business are you in? If you put that stuff up front before you give them the, the, what they came for, you're adding friction. Whereas if you do it after the reward, you're building investment. And what that does is that it loads the next trigger. So now you have an opportunity to reach out to them again based on what they did, right? You can ask them information about, well, when do you tend to buy ads and what kind of campaigns you can do? I mean, slowly, you can't do it all at once. You have to be very thoughtful about how you do that. But anytime you can get them to invest in the product, you're storing value. You're making the product better and better with use. You're customizing it for them. And you're loading the next trigger so that you have a reason to reach out to them again in the future. Not because you want to, but because they asked for it. They did something that mm -hmm. brings them back. The really interesting thing about it, so we were developing a product to, to go alongside our ad testing product, which is called a profit projector, right? So what we worked out is that we could sort of take these scores that you get for your ad test and we could do a prediction on, on the impact it might have on your market share. So it's a really kind of clever way of justifying your advertising expenditure. Yeah. Now, what you've just made me think is at the moment we had the work up front. So we said, tell us the size of your market. Tell us how much you spend on advertising. Tell us the margin you might kind of make. Tell us how much it costs you to make the ad sort of thing. And we'll tell you based on how good your ad is, the likely success. But what mm. I should be doing is going, test your ad with me first in this very easy, you know, very, you know, easy to do thing. And at the end of it, when they're delighted with that to go. And if you give us a, this information, we can also then tell you how, how it might impact on you in the future. So that's interesting. Yeah. It, it kind of builds in when to put the friction into the cycle, doesn't it? So exactly. Have the or, or start them out with the default. Even, even better, give them a yeah. default. 
and have them customize, right? Like little tabs or something that they can adjust very easily. Like dials or something, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But get, reduce the friction as much as possible to get them the reward, to get them the payoff, and then let them customize. That makes a lot of sense. Good. All right. So thank you. It's like a one-to-one bit of <laughs> consultancy. <Pleasure. laughs> <laughs> thank you. Let's talk about action as well, because that's what we're trying to achieve here. I like the little model, motivation, ability, trigger. And it, it, it kind of made me think whether I've understood this correctly or not. But like I work in the advertising industry. Advertising is so much about motivation, isn't it? It's right. like I want to look like this guy that's been down to the gym. You know, I want to look fashionable like this girl on the catwalk kind of thing. And but advertising often misses out the sort of ability and trigger phase, doesn't it? Is that right? It definitely does. It definitely does. And that is a strategy. Look, display advertising uses, by and large, uses what's called the mere exposure effect. The mere exposure effect says that the more you see a logo, a spokesperson, the more you hear a jingle, the greater affinity you have towards that person or, or uh, brand. And that works fine, right? That's worked for well over a century now. It works very well. The problem is, of course, it's very expensive, <laughs> right? That to get display advertising in front of people's eyeballs costs a pretty penny. But when you think about the world-changing companies over the past decade or so, when you think about Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, you know these companies spend a fraction of their money on display advertising. So how do they build consumer habits? How do they shape preferences? They do it through the product itself, right? By using the product, people build an affinity for it. And that's exactly what creating a hook is all about. That, that it, of course, you know, every company, not every, most companies are going to need some amount of, of exposure and awareness. But of course, once you acquire that customer, you damn well, well better keep them, right? It's so much more expensive to acquire a customer versus keeping them. And it's incredible how little effort companies put into keeping customers hooked. And it's a huge, huge missed opportunity. So much so, you know, it's, 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 it's very frustrating to me because I see these opportunities. And I, I think the reason why this happens is that you can always buy growth, right? You can always buy growth. You want more customers, buy some ads, go to Google, go to Facebook, go to your television station, buy ads. You can always do that. And that should be part of your media mix, sure. But you can't buy engagement. You can't buy engagement. Engagement has to be built into the product interface. And I think that's why it, it's, you know, talk about friction in an organizational context. It's very hard for people to sit down and rethink and retool their product experience. So it doesn't tend to happen. It's much easier. Hey, let's just get more people to come to and try our product. But if you're not keeping those people, you have what's called a leaky bucket, right? A leaky bucket business is where you have lots of people coming in and lots of people leaking out, right? Lots of user churn. And that's a huge missed opportunity. So, so Nir, you must look at social media companies around the world, you know, with fascinating interest and, and see who does it well and who's not doing it well. Who, who do you admire at the moment? What do you, who do you look at and go, now they've really got it? From social media companies in particular? Yeah, well, well maybe technology in general. But who, who do you admire that, you know, as, as you look at, you know, look at around the world? Well, I'll tell you who, who does it better than anybody at the moment is TikTok. Let's walk through the TikTok hook, right? The internal trigger is boredom. Right? It's the same reason people used to watch football games or turn on the television or read trashy magazines. Right, like Boredom has always been with us. There's always trying to cater to that solution to boredom. So that's the internal trigger. It's an age-old internal trigger. People feel it a lot. <laughs> and thank God we live in an age where people have the, the extra time. Right, The average American watches five hours of television a night. So we have plenty of excess time to do things with our attention. And so many people choose to go on TikTok. Now, 
the action, they've really perfected the action phase. Because you think about, you know, when you go on other social media platforms, you, you have to do something, right? Even if it is just a scroll, you have to navigate, look around, figure out what you want to do. TikTok, boom, they put you right into a video, okay? Then you've got the variable reward. The variable reward is what is in the content, right? Is it interesting? Is it funny? What's in, you know, What's going to happen? There's always an element of surprise. The best content always has that surprise factor, right? And then the investment phase is where they really excel. So the TikTok algorithm is unbelievable, right? If you are, they know not only based on active forms of investment, right? If you like a video or, or reshare it or do something to it or follow the person, whatever you can do. Those are forms of active investment that's telling the company, hey, serve me more com- content like this. But they also collect passive form of, of investment, meaning how long you watch. If your finger's on the screen, there's rumors that they're actually watching your face. I don't know if that's true or not, There's, but that's one of the rumors out there. I, I can't verify that. I know their terms of service, believe it or not, lets them do that. So I'm a little suspicious. Ooh. So wow. I, I that's that's the first social media company I'm... I'm cautious about it. You know, I think a lot of the gloom and doom and Facebook is addicting us and melting our brains. I think it's it's by and large way overblown. And and to, today I've always said, you know, it's 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 about using it in a in a way that serves you as opposed to hurt you. And so if you want to use it a little bit yeah. every day, there's no problem. That's what Indistractable is all about. How you can use these tools yeah. constructively. But I will tell you, TikTok, I don't recommend. I don't recommend because more so I don't know who's behind it and I don't know what their motives are. Mm. I know what Mark Zuckerberg's motives are. I know what Google's motives are. They want to make money. That's all they care about. They want to serve their shareholders. And that's that's reasonable. That's what they're, that's also the New York Times motive, right? Like the, all these companies mm-hmm. are in the profit-making business. That's what they do. I don't know what the motives of the Chinese Communist Party are. So that's one tool that I, I don't recommend, not because I think it's something that we can't manage or control, but we wouldn't even know what was being served to us if there was like a, 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 a thumb on the scale serving us more of one content yeah. versus the other, we would have no idea, no transparency. And so until we have those kind of laws, I think that's a company that's using these methodologies to potentially adverse consequences. Well, that does take me to another bit in your book, actually, where you do touch on the morality of this as well, don't you? Which I think is is fascinating because it, it is probably what we all worry about is, you know, whether these techniques are being used to manipulate society or for, for bad reasons as well as good. So that's a really important point. I wonder on another similar, well, an adjacent topic, but a very hot topic at the moment is is AI. I mean, a, a slight tangent, but going back to my system, one job, we Nike did a collaboration with, with Tiffany and, and released a limited edition shoe. And I, I looked at it and thought, it's not that good, really. I, I, it's just a black pair of trainers with, with a, a Tiffany colored swoosh on it. I'm like, what am I missing here? Anyway, of course, they sold out and all the rest of it. But I put it through the system one, you know, test to see what people thought. And lo and behold, it wasn't very good. But I thought, I'll, I'll go and look at an AI version. And I looked at an AI version. An AI version didn't just beat the, the Nike designed one. It obliterated it in terms of score it was way better it was way way better which kind of thought oh maybe the technology here is so good at sort of working out what we want and what we don't want that it it is it is starting to now beat the kind of human ingenuity what's your take on ai and whether it can be you know whether it can help or hinder us so this is going to be huge. I think over the next decade, what we're going to see is if you look at the if you look at it through the lens of the hook model, what's going to happen is that we are going to create what we what I call contingency. Contingency is when the user changes the product and the product changes the user. 
And so that cycle is going to happen faster than ever. So here's what's going to happen. Every time you use a product, you are going to give the company information, data about how you use that product. And that is going to feed into some kind of AI or LLM or something or machine learning, something that's going to improve the product with use in a way that today is hard to imagine. We're going to have generative content based on our usage patterns in a way that can customize to our tastes and preferences in a whole new way. And it's not just going to be for media companies. Essentially, I think you're going to be left in the dust if you are not customizing your experience per customer. So I think in in 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to look back and say, people used to have a website and everybody would have to see the same website. That's ridiculous. Like that's that's not going to exist because every time you're going to integrate, you're going to interact with a company, they're going to you know, it, as long as you give them permission, of course, there's going to be all kinds of regulation about how we do this, but we're going to want this. It's not going to be, you know, selling our data. We're going to want people to customize experience. It's going to feel broken to us to have an experience that everybody gets. We're going to want more and more customization. And that's going to be done because of how the hook cycle will integrate AI to build customized experiences and personalized experiences based on the investment phase of the hook model. Wow, that is mind blowing, I have to say, isn't it? Are you seeing any businesses using AI? Who should we watch? I mean, who did you have you seen it? I mean, it feels very emergent, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, Chat GPT is the one that we're all kind of you know playing around with at the moment. But is anyone doing it well yet? Any anyone we should watch to get get some tips from? Let me think about that. Well, I think I think the social media companies, you know, they built their own algorithms to match, you know, your tastes and preferences, what they think are your implied tastes and preferences, mostly based on, I think it's called homophily, that birds of a feather flock together. So they profile you as a certain type of user. And if that type of person likes this type of stuff, there's a good chance you're going to like that type of stuff. So to date, it's been a one-to-one connection, but that's not super practical for everyone, right? If you're a SaaS business or you're in healthcare, I don't really know how you apply that. What's going to happen as the next step is that it's going to the, the the technology is going to take your preferences and generate content based for you based on your past usage preferences on the fly. So now it's not about you know matching this user generated content with this user. It's going to be about creating for this user content in the format that they want to see. So we can imagine a future if 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 a website knows, for example, that you're in a certain age demographic, right? Let's say you're over seventy. Well, maybe they automatically adjust the text so that it's a certain size to make it easier to read. Maybe the colors are adjusted. Maybe they you know maybe they have a kind of aesthetic that it's more reminiscent of when you first started going on the internet, right? Versus someone who's yeah. in their Maybe they're going to want to see a completely different experience and, and, and you know, swipe instead of scroll. I don't know. In, in any case, I think that's going to be the type of customization that we're going to see more and more companies bringing to, to market. I think you've hit it on nail on the head because previously up to now, the, the, the kind of algorithms and AI was allowing us to meet, you know, match buyer and seller or use information to sort of make sure that whatever was served to us was more relevant to us, which is mm-hmm. fine. The thing with the Nike and Tiffany example is actually they're now creating something. They're creating a product. They're creating an advert there, you know, and that's that is actually replacing a marketing department because in the marketing department, your job is I'm going to create the next pair of trainers. Right. I'm going to now create an advert for Nike to, you know, with a celebrity in to sort of show what, you know, just do it means and that sort of thing. Well, if the AI is going which celebrity does Nier connect with and which sport does he like most and which emotion is he expressing and which what is he trying to achieve in his life through his fitness pal? And it pulls all that together and serves you up the most powerful advert ever. 
like you, you start to wonder how on earth can you compete with that you know it is that's mind-blowing isn't it yeah yeah i mean you know it's I think it's going to be powerful, but I think there's there's always an arms race, right? Between you know this this type of uh, between advertisers looking for the user's attention, and over time we we learn, right? Society adapts, right? It wasn't the the first banner ad was for AT and T, and and it was I think it had something like ten percent click through rates, which of course we've never seen again. It does feel like, doesn't it? We might be on the beginning of something really dramatic. At the same time, we could be on the beginning of something that we look back and go, "What was the fuss about?" Like it's sort yeah. of you know, it's like NFTs or something. It sort of blew up and went to get went to get anyway. There will be it will be a more customizable future. I think you know that 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 old saying of I don't know which half of my ad spending I'm wasting or whatever that quote is. Like that, I think that there's yeah. a chance that that's going to go away now because we yeah. might get better and better at targeting what people are actually in market for and there, we might reach this age that we've been talking about forever where ads are actually useful like it's actually stuff that you do want in your life as opposed to well, you know stupid at targeting I'm, 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 I'm glad you mentioned that because actually one of the benefits i have at system one is is we automatically test every ad that goes out right so mm-hmm. it, 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 within 24 hours of a new ad airing in the uk and the u.s We'll have put it through our testing system, which basically asks people how they feel about it. Can they remember the brand? What reasons for the emotion do they give? And so on. So we get to the, we get to the why, why, why. Um, and we do that on every ad. And what's interesting is we then, we've been able to model the correlation between the star rating, it's a five-star system, and whether the advert will change behavior in markets or whether the brand sees any market share change in the following 12 months. What we've worked out is, 48% of all ads we test have no impact whatsoever on that brand, right? The future is that you see ads that not only are, are that are customized and generated just for you for products that are generated just for you. Yeah, yeah. Right? So like, that's so the thing. That's the game changer, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, maybe they don't even exist, but, but, but by saying, by clicking on them, they then become a they then become real. They go to the factory, get made and get delivered. And that's right. they weren't in existence before. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a pretty unconventional view of what display advertising is really for. I, I think display, aver- and I think the metrics are kind of messed up in, in terms of how we how we look at, uh, you know, we rate, you know, preference change and things like that. I, I think display advertising is really about reinforcing existing buyers, right? I don't, I don't think Coca-Cola spends all that money on ads for, to pe- get people to stop drinking Pepsi and start drinking Coke. They do it to keep the Coke drinkers drinking Coke, right? They're reinforcing yeah. their, their identity people. So of course, you're not going to necessarily see, you know, the, 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 that it's, a, it, it should be ineffective for 50% of the people who, who see it because mass, the vast majority of those people are never going to be Coke yeah. drinkers. I'm never going to be a Coke drinker. I'm not interested, <laughs> right? But you're but, absolutely right. It is, it is, it can be effective. And, and there's a, Amazing statistic actually from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute that said that this is an average across lots of categories. On average, 95% of people are not even considering buying the category that you're advertising. So right. most people's banner advertising has probably got a percentage chance of 5%. And then within there, you know, it's obviously the, the chance then drops again. So no, you're absolutely right. And, and this is where I think, you know, Banner advertising is kind of like the old-fashioned shop window. It's the it's the sign above the door that most people walk past, and occasionally someone who is a drinker goes, "Oh yeah, I need a coke. I might go in." You know, mm-hmm. but no, no, it's very, very true. Very, very true. Let's talk quickly before we finish. On I thought on some of the behavioural science as well. There are some examples, aren't there, where people 
that might change the logic and the rationale. And, and going back to my Nike example, of course, the reason that Nike Tiffany trainers are doing so well is scarcity, as, as an example, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. there are sometimes reasons beyond the rational why things might be doing successful. So what can behavioral science tell us about the reasons people buy that maybe are not so obvious? So, yeah, I would put the cognitive biases of which there are, you look on Wikipedia, there's what, well over 150 different cognitive biases. I would put that in the bucket of the action phase of the hook model. These are things that either mm. increase motivation or decrease effort. They decrease friction. And so that that's where all of them would fit in. So if you think about the scarcity effect, right, there's this wonderful study where they took two jars and they put cookies, identical cookies in both jars, but one jar had cookies up to the top, the other jar had just a few cookies left, and they saw what people were willing to pay for each cookie for the cookies in each of these jars, and people were willing to pay more for the scarce cookies because there's this impl- implicit deduction that, hey, if there's less of that cookie, it must be better. It must be more popular because look how many people have bought it before me. So let me get one of those before it runs out. So there's all kinds of cognitive biases. I do think that the challenge, I think, for marketers out there is applying these techniques. That, you know, some of them, like the scarcity effect, it's pretty obvious, right? We all know the effect yeah, of Yeah, yeah. But I think there's so many other ones that are just really, really tough to apply. And so the best thing to do is, is not to, to, to stake your claim and say, yep, that, that the cognitive bias is definitely going to work, but rather to build the type of organization that, that allows you to rapidly test and iterate on these different ideas and to and to use it as a a springboard for brainstorming because I will tell you you know I've seen in my in my career many people try many of these cognitive biases to get people to do this that and the other and I will tell you the vast majority of experiments fail not that they are not worth doing right because you if you're not, if your tests aren't failing more than they're succeeding you're not testing enough right it's a really important point if your tests are not failing more than they're succeeding you are not testing enough. You're just testing the obvious stuff. You need to test the non-obvious stuff. So it's, that's a, I think, you know, going to the Wikipedia page of all these cognitive biases, sure, look at them, use them as brainstorming fodder, and then go test, test, test. I love it. I'd be fascinated to know what you think of the metaverse, because when, when you got to the investment phase, and when I yeah. think about a, a small example, I, you know, I remember someone approached me and they offered me £350 to do a one hour interview to talk about, you know, my experience in the particular industry. And, and I said, no. I mean, for me personally, I, I thought that's not enough money for me to to give up an hour of my time, right? Some people might be listening going, bloody hell, you know, who's he think he is? But anyway, and yet if someone said to me, can we meet for a coffee and can I pick your brains about what I might do in my career next? I'd be like, of course, I'd love to do that, mm. you know, mm. by, by all means kind of thing. And cost of a coffee, you know, $5, three pounds, whatever. And and so sometimes our motivations are not really what they seem, are they? And I just wondered with the, with the metaverse as well, it, I, I can't understand the motivation for it, but, but what do you mm. think you know, based on your model, do you think the metaverse has got a good chance of success? I think it has a good chance of a success in the next few generations of the product. I think under the current product, I'll tell you exactly why the hook model says it won't work because the action phase is way too difficult. Currently, there is way too much friction. I, I have an Oculus. I always get sent to me the latest and greatest stuff, so I try everything. And the big problem with it today is that there's just too much friction. It's it's heavy, it's sweaty, it's it it, it it's cumbersome. It just doesn't make sense to to use it. It'd be back in the '90s carrying around a desktop computer to a coffee shop to do work, right? It just it's just yes. too heavy, yes. right? But then guess what happened? Yeah, yeah. we we got laptops, 
right? We got the MacBook yeah. Air and it's, you know, it's yeah. super, you know, it's pencil thin and it's wonderful and I carry it everywhere. And that's just the beginning. And so do I believe VR is, is real and will it come? Yes. Do I know what form and, you know, what's going to be the killer application? I'm not really sure. I will t- tell you that I've seen a lot of really cool applications coming in the behavior chain space. Actually, I have this right next to me. This is a company called Mindco that I've been advising. This is not actually a VR headset. It's you put your phone into this plastic Ooh, case. That's clever. And then your yeah. iPhone becomes the screen of the, of the VR headset. So it's very cheap and it's a system mm. to help people with smoking cessation. So get this, and they also do anxiety, training for anxiety as well. So what they will do is they will put you into a situation where you are likely to experience the adverse thing, right? So if you're a smoker and you're trying to quit, they'll put you in VR in a party with lots of people smoking. And as you're in that that situation in VR, they will coach you through how to deal with those cravings, right? If you're If you have a phobia, They'll expose you to, you know, let's say you're afraid of dogs. Well, they'll expose you to a puppy in VR where you're perfectly safe. And then, you know, this is classic exposure therapy. They'll expose more and more and more and more until, you know, you can sit next to a German shepherd without, without breaking a sweat. So there's some really cool applications coming through VR. I mean, it's been, it's been shown to be very effective to treat PTSD. If you think about, you know, how many people for one reason or another can't leave their home to make social contact with others because of various circumstances, maybe they're far away from others, maybe they have health conditions. There will be applications for this. I have no doubt in my mind. It's just not going to be the next step, right? The, it's, the, it, this is very far from crossing the chasm, but I, I do believe it will get there. I don't, and I also don't know who's going to do it. The rumor is Apple's actually going to release a VR headset this year. And let me tell you, if Apple releases a headset, it's going to be good. <laughs> mm. Do you know what? I think you're right. It's the old phrase, it, you know, either be first or be better. You know, and, and I think if Apple do it, you, you, you'd have to bet on it because they really understand how we work. Thank you so much. We've run out of time, unfortunately, but, but that's been amazing. There's so much to think about in there. And, and as I say, to every listener, do get do get the hook book it is a really great way of thinking through your products and how to make it how to make consumers get hooked on it so thank you again Nia, for taking the time to do part two of our uh, yeah two-part podcast my pleasure thanks so much for having me see you again soon so thank you everyone for uh, listening into the uncensored cmo that was my conversation with eril talking about how we build habit forming products inspired by his book hooked if you want to get a copy please do look it up it's a great book it's got tons of secrets in there and i really didn't get to ask hardly any of the questions i wanted to in the short time we had together so a lot of the answers are there in the book to be discovered if you'd like to find out more about uncensored cmo you'd like to subscribe please do never miss an episode again uh, we go out every couple of weeks you can find me on youtube YouTube. You can also find me on Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn at Uncensored CMO. Uh, please do follow me. Leave me a review if you can. I love reviews. It's great to get them and it gives other listeners some confidence before they try the Uncensored CMO for the first time. Uh, so thank you very much for listening and for watching and I will see you next time. <laughs>